FIS Castaway, the podcast keeping you in the know about the shipping and commodity world. To keep up to date, sign up to our FIS Live app at www.fis-live.com or follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Hello, welcome back to our podcast. Uh, joining me again is Kerry and Tom. Hi, guys. Hi, Chris. Morning, guys. So, it is uh, Wednesday the 28th of October and what news have we seen in the last week? Well, We've had uh, Amy Coney Barrett was uh, confirmed as the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, coronavirus surging across Europe and the U.S. Uh, Libya has agreed a ceasefire between its three rival factions. The U.S. and India signed a defense agreement to counter Chinese expansion. Uh, Islamic countries have boycotted French exports after criticizing the use of cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad in French schools. EU-backed uh, Nigerian candidate for the uh, WTO head of the WTO. Japan announced it would aim to be carbon neutral by 2050. British Special Forces stormed a tanker to end uh, suspected hijacking in the English Channel. Venezuela opposition leader has fled the country. Uh, We had the last of the presidential debates ahead of the US election next Tuesday. Uh, A no confidence vote in the Spanish government was defeated and the UK and the EU have resumed their trade negotiation talks. So uh, a mixed bag looking forward, but why don't we go straight into our indexes which are looking at Tuesday the 20th versus yesterday, Tuesday the 27th. Uh, Tom, what will we be seeing on the indexes on iron ore? Uh, On the iron ore, a bit of a move down this week, uh, as we've sort of been anticipating, I think. So on the uh, higher grade contract, the 65% metal bulletin index that we look at, uh, we've seen a shift down from $133 last Tuesday to $129.80 yesterday, so a down move of 2.4%. Um, the 62% uh, flats index that we look at uh, down from 195 to 115.7, uh, down 3.1%. Oh, and Kerry, what about the freight, dry freight? A little bit less activity than we've had in the past few weeks on the freight. The Cape's uh, $18,606 on the 5TC average uh, yesterday. That's down, uh, that's up. on last week this time, or about 9%. And the Panamax is at $10,317 on the 4TC average. That's up $194, or about 2% over this time last week. Cool. On the wet freight, TC2, we've seen a move up up 14% uh, from $75.56 to $86.11. TC5, down 10%, $66.88 to $60.06. TD3C, the main route Arab Gulf to uh, China has been down 4.5% ending 28.08. Uh, and TD25 is down 7% ending 42.50. And on the oil and related products, Brent, we've seen come off a bit off 4.54% Tuesday to Tuesday, ending 41.20 yesterday. Uh, Sing 380 uh, down 5%, ending 248.75. Rot 3.5% down 0.71%, ending 245.75. Uh, the relevant very low sulfur fuel oils, Singapore, uh, was down 3.09% week on week to 3.1162. Rotterdam, 0.5%, was down 1.48% to 2.9975. Uh, and the Sing High 5, that's the difference between very low sulfur fuel oil and high sulfur fuel oil, uh, was up on Singapore, uh, 59.56 to 62.88, up 5, just over 5%. And Rotterdam High 5 was off 4.85%, ending 54 so kind of just mostly all off on the uh, on the oil and products, slightly down on the on the iron ore as well. But uh, it seems that freight has been popping up a bit. 
so the, the success story of the indexes. But I, I do quite strategy? enjoy the fact that uh, we described that as a quiet week in uh, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Not, a swing is absolutely nothing. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. put another zero on it might be worth talking about. <laughs> Uh, but Gary, if we're talking about that quiet week and freight, why don't you give us the background on what's actually been happening behind the index numbers? What's going on? Well, you know, overall, look, we continue to have this somewhat positive background condition for the Capes, I think. Um, you know, the Valley Q3 report stated they've been maintaining production around 1 million tons a day since mid-July. Um, and uh, their Q3 production of 88.67 million tons uh, was up 2.3% against same quarter in 2019, but a massive jump of over 30%, 31.2%, in fact, against uh, Q2 of this year. So, I mean, that, that provides this basic support for the big ships. However, you know, after this dramatic jump we saw last week uh, on the C3 route, the Brazil-China route uh, on freight, the market failed to follow through uh, with further rises. Despite tighter tonnage for the nearby dates, the Brazilian miners actually showed some discipline and, and managed to hold off enough to bring the rates down a touch to the low 17. Uh, right at the moment, we're seeing on the physical market a few more cargoes appearing, which has led to offers pulling back to about the $18 level. But uh, it's just a bit of a standoff right now. That's E5 West Australia China route remains fairly steady. Um, I do suspect we're seeing the effects of decreasing congestion overall in China, particularly in regards to coking coal stems out of Australia. So despite the fact there's about 20 vessels still stranded, pretty much waiting discharge of now barred Australian cargo, that was a lot less than it was just a couple of weeks ago, um, which has kept rates fairly steady. Um, the paper was pushing up until late in the week last week before coming fairly sharply back down with that NOV contract now trading 16.875 today, um, which is actually broken now below its five and 10 day moving averages, uh, which you can see on our app. If you look at the Bollingers, the next likely supports a bit lower, in fact, at probably around 15,400, um, which was similar to the close of the previous lows a couple of weeks back. Uh, the Panamaxes, a lot less action. They've been more or less flat in the East. Fairly muted activity out of East Coast South America has also been dragging a bit. There's been a lot more noise in the last few days from the North Atlantic with some new stems emerging for TA and front hall business, but we don't see this shifting the indices substantially yet. And the paper just doesn't seem to be buying in yet. Uh, the knob is trading around two, 10 275 this morning. Uh, that's down almost 400 bucks on yesterday's close. So you know, whether or not we're seeing more support in the Atlantic, the paper doesn't quite believe it yet. That was quite an incredible move in terms of uh, the production from Vale. I know that we started off, um, where would it have been? We were in Q2 and we started the podcast looking at Vale's figures going, oh yeah, pinch of salt levels, but 31.2% increase from Q2. Quarter and quarter. It's, it's extraordinary, isn't it? Uh, and, you know, I know we discussed a few weeks ago on this podcast that uh, Valet had clearly had a bit of a change of strategy. Um, they were willing potentially to sacrifice a little bit of the quality in terms of FD content in order to get every turn out the door. Uh, boy, has that seemed to have worked. Um, just a remarkable jump quarter on quarter in that production, isn't it? But they still got to hit seven and a half million tons a week. Last week, they were down 337,000 tons week on week and only hitting 7.36. So, you know, Every week that that sort of 140, 150, 200,000 tons builds up, we get further and further away from hitting that 
uh, hitting that target, uh, albeit less than we were anticipating six months ago. But exactly, exactly. That is a good point. But yeah, I just think you know, given where we thought this would go when we started this podcast, you know, it's still. Oh, and just to pick up on the point about the Australian cargoes, I mean, we were talking last week that they were umming and ahhing about it, no official word. Is that now actually come out that, that it is being barred? There, there, there's no... Well, there is a import restriction. Uh, there are import restrictions on Australian tonnage. There are there are import restrictions on global coking coal tonnage into, into China annually. They will reset at the end of this year, the sort of global quotas. Uh, and I think the market is anticipating that they will be harsher next year than they were this year. The Australian argument um, <clears throat> is still one that um, there is an import restriction, um, but everyone seems to think that it won't actually be fully delivered on, um, which has always been the case in the past. So people yeah. are still shipping tonnage Uh despite the fact that there is, in theory, an import restriction. And if we could just take a moment to look at that coking coal market, because I think it's been it's been pretty fascinating. You know, it is true that on the 13th of October, key steelmakers and power generators were told simply to stop importing Australian coal, both met coal and thermal. Um, but this was a verbal instruction, still nothing official. Um you know, and what we've seen is this massive spread has opened up between the Chinese domestic and the Australian, but that spread is all coming from the tumbling in prices uh, from the Aussie FOB price on that coking coal, right? So according to Argus, that's down 26 bucks since October 13th um, uh, uh, for the low vol coking coal and for the hard coking coal, it's down about 16 bucks. So there's been a lot of chatter about what effect this is going to have, whether or not it's going to drive up prices in China. There's some debate over whether prices have really risen or whether that spread is just opening up because of the fall in Aussie prices. Um, you know, and, and so for the moment, it does appear that it's not really affecting Chinese mill margins. Um, you know, no, not- I mean, there has been on the, on the physical coke in China, uh, there has been a sort of steady increase in pricing uh, over the last few sort of months. Um, but there's also... Um, some capacity uh, in the Shanxi prov- uh, province, which is going to be brought offline in Q4, which is probably having more of an impact on it than uh, than anything else. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting, though, to me. Um, and and the, the, the behavior of that market's interesting. It's always worth noting, of course, that we talk a lot about iron ore as the primary ingredient in steel here. But, of course, those steel mill margins are very heavily dependent on coking coal prices as well. So... You know, um, if those prices stay relatively low, if those quotas are reset next year, it, you may see, you know, yet another incentive for the mills to increase production as their margins jump again. But let's see. Cool. Well, let's why don't we move on to iron or Tom. Can you give us an update there? Sure. Um, so in terms of um, Australian Brazilian deliveries into China, uh, total deliveries last week were just shy of 12 or just over 24 and a half million tons. Um, so down 339,000 tonnes week on week. Um, Aussie deliveries, 17.21, uh, down 3 million uh, on last week. Um, 13.8 million tonnes of that going into China. Um, a lot of that is because I think we did touch on it last week, but there was uh, a lot some scheduled port maintenance uh, out of Australia last week. So that was very much forecasted uh, capacity drop uh, from Australia. 
Um, Brazil delivery, as we sort of touched on just a second ago, uh, down a little bit on the week before. Um, so a, a slight drop off in uh, sort of the movement of iron ore around the, the globe uh, this week. Um, in terms of the steel side, uh, you know, the, the, the driving factor of iron ore utilization, um, blast furnace operation uh, rates in China uh, decreased from 90 or 92% essentially in mid-August to, to 88.5% last week. Um, so, you know, capacity utilization dropping there. Uh, and over the same period, um, my steel estimate that uh, daily pig iron production has dropped from 2.5 million tonnes to 2.45 million tonnes. So I think that surplus of steel, that surplus iron ore coming into China that we've been constantly talking about um, is maybe starting to, to bear fruit in terms of index prices, uh, starting to come to fruition a little bit. Um, we've been saying, you know, week on week on week that this has to at some point correct. Um, it has moved lower uh, over the course of the last week, but there's been, as has been the case relatively frequently this year, as it moves lower steeply, there seems to be either you know, aggressive profit, profit taking on that sort of move down or, uh, and it, and it pops back up quite quickly and then sort of corrects the correction as it were. So, um, still a little bit confused as to genuine price direction at the moment, I think would be a fair, uh, summary of what's going on, but some of the fundamentals that we've been talking about, uh, over the last few weeks, uh, and months, in fact, do seem to be starting to to come into play uh, as we head into Q4 uh, or, or head into the latter part of Q4, sorry. Um, and some of the physical traders uh, that you see in uh, Eastern Chinese physical traders are sort of indicating that the export boom that we saw in September and early October has really started to weaken uh, at the back end of October. And if you look at iron ore trading volumes on the onshore contract, and indeed on the SGX contract in the futures for October, they are significantly lower uh, than September, but also than this month last year. October includes Golden Week, so it's normally a quiet month. But um, I think when we checked uh, earlier this week, the October year-on-year -year figures for Dalian are down 25 to 30% on last year in terms of volume. So I think that uncertainty that we've been talking about, that lack of clear direction, people being unwilling to take a view on the futures because of so much uncertainty around you know, the price is starting to actually show up in the in the derivatives market as well yeah. because it, it's very hard now to justify staying in a position or even to justify a view because you may well be correct, but it, 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 it hurts a lot uh, yeah. to stay in that position. Take in order to, yeah. to prove that you're correct, you know, before that comes to fruition, right? Before your transaction yeah. starts to come into the money. Yeah. So. But is this giving um, credence to the theory that when we brought up last week, the worst case scenario is that iron ore next year pricing is going to be in the 50s? Is this the start of people going, oh, we may be having that correction towards it? And all those people making those predictions of 50s going, yes, here we go, here we go. Uh, I mean, I think 50s is 55, wasn't it? The, uh, the Aussie. Um, Government, yeah. state uh, state budget, which is obviously, yeah, as we said at the time, hugely conservative. I think, you know, that would be black swan scenario, I think, from where we are <laughs> yeah. at the moment. But I do think everyone is starting to think that this has to move. But I think 
as I just said, with the with the volumes, I think it's no one's no one's really prepared to genuinely express that view at the moment. So I think there's very much a degree of waiting for a move to actually sort of bed in, I think, uh, and yeah. then people will sort of get behind that. Um, but it takes a brave, brave trader to sell into this at the moment. And it takes a bold trader to buy into it at the moment because it does feel very toppy. Um, so I, I think, yeah, Chris, you probably are right. I think through the course of Q1, that is what we would expect. Nowhere near those 55 levels, I would hope. But um, but I, I do think we will see, a, you know, a, a steady drift down, uh, you know, if, if reading, you know, if you read any of the analysts out there at the moment, there are very few yeah. people that are suggesting that it can stay up at these levels for you know, any degree of time into next year. At a chart of the consensus sort of median bank forecast figures on iron ore at the moment for next year. And I, I, as I recall, it's something like, you know, 90s moving into the low 80s, perhaps during the course of the year, I think. Um, yeah, that's that a reasonable well. assumption, I would say. Yeah, to, to, to look at sort of 50s as a level, that would be, yeah, that would be that would be big trouble if we were down there. Yeah, it's like historically when you look at it, perhaps people will go, what a weird inversion iron ore represented to everything else. When we had the big crisis, oil coming off um, in the early part of, of this year and iron ore didn't, didn't mind, it just carried on chocking up, 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 up. And then when we get to a stage where we're going, oh, look, we've got potential vaccine, University of Oxford said yesterday, uh, the economy is all coming back out, uh, people going back into work. Okay, we have this second wave coming up. But in terms of a general sense of combating the virus and then iron ore coming off down to the 80s and then, obviously, as we said, Aussie government 55, it seems to be complete opposite of everything that you would have thought. Well, exactly, yeah. Weird. I mean, I do, I do, my cynical view, uh, and it's just my view, is that, uh, I the, the stockpiles that China is building on the steel front, uh, I don't think can be utilised by genuine Chinese demand. Uh, the, the stockpiles are so high. So I take the view that they are just building a sort of war chest for when the rest of the world does come back online, that they have readily available steel, but they are going to squeeze them on. So price. you think uh, they're going to just absolutely slam on the exports yep. basically when uh, sort of pour on the exports once uh, once the rest yep. of the world come back that, yeah, yeah. That, that, that has to happen well um, it does seem sensible for a lot of countries who are planning infrastructure spending though yeah exactly exactly yeah look at looking at biden in the us if, if he does get in but we'll save that for later on um oil and products what do we have a little look at what's happening there so we we popped up to above 42.58 uh, at the end of last week, but we've seen a kind of slow descent uh, into this week. And especially this morning, we were off 3% before I walked into the room to record the podcast. So, and the products have generally followed that pattern of of Brent and accrued movements. FOGOs are continuing to push though. We, we had Euro move from minus 36 to minus 14 quarter yesterday, uh, week to week, uh, and th- minus 30 uh, sorry, mi- minus 36 to minus 30, 50 on the euro and minus uh, 14 quarter on the sink to minus nine and a half. Uh, that was Tuesday to Tuesday level. So it was continuing its push up, which we saw at the start of September, right into towards the end of October now as well. So that really narrowing the difference between the, that 0.5% fuel and the respective gas oils. In terms of high sulfur, we've seen really good margins for that high sulfur fuel oil. That's risen and we've seen record levels for this year 
Uh, and that's, you can see that in, in the crack levels. Uh, we've hit a high of minus 345 a few days ago. That was on the uh, NOV uh, crack. Further countering the narrative of everyone's prediction uh, last year, where everyone going, IMO 2020, no one's going to need high sulfur fuel oil. It's going to drop off a cliff into insignificance. Completely the opposite. And they've seen a really <laughs> strong 2020. Um, we've seen a real good support in terms of supplies, shortage of supplies on that fuel, uh, robust demand for bunkers, uh, for blending as well, and power generation. Things like Saudi Arabia and Pakistan are really starting to um, have previously, we've noted previously on, on Saudi Arabia, but also Pakistan, big need for power production for that high sulfur fuel oil. This morning, or last night, or this morning, we got the news out that uh, API predicting a build in US crude stocks. Um, so more negative news pushing on, and I'm sure that's part of the reason why we've fallen off quite significantly uh, this morning. Um, also adding to that bearish feeling is the kind of restarting of Libyan production. So we've seen uh, a lift of the force mayor on the L-field, I-field, oil field, uh, which could produce another 1 million barrels per day output. How quickly, um, Chris, sorry to interrupt, do they expect correct. to ramp up? How are we? Well, currently at 700,000, they think they can okay. ramp up to 1 million. Okay. So it's another increase of, yeah. uh, it was a significant increase. I mean, they've had huge problems there in terms of their, their civil war and their stop and start of production. They had a blockade of the port. So real, real problems in terms of production for Libya. But it comes at a time when OPEC aren't fulfilling or haven't fulfilled the production cuts that they said they would. They had historic ones. Countries haven't done what they should do. Uh, now they've got to make significant cuts now, which isn't really being made. Now Libya are coming back on board after an agreement of a ceasefire, which we noted in the news right at the start. Uh, it is a bad timing if you're an OPEC member for Libya to come back into it and go, oh, look, we can potentially ramp up to 1 million uh, barrels per day in a market which hasn't recovered in terms of the demand side, uh, especially as reports previously noted that we're not going to get back to pre-crisis levels till 2023 because of all the problems in the air. Uh, air industry and that's completely decimated demand there for for oil and refineries are running at lower rates probably around you know 70 to 80 percent a lot of asian refineries so that's not drawing in the crude that it was previously um but then can contribute in terms of the product wise if they're not ramping through concentrating on domestic supply that has had a real effect on the sing point five percent for example where we're hearing reports that china's really struggling to fulfill all its needs and therefore is importing from singapore which has driven up that sing point five percent price hence what we were noting previously on the on the fogos it's a real strength of 0.5 percent uh, which isn't reflected in the same in the gas oil which has narrowed those prices and why we're seeing you know single figures on the fogo level for the singapore yeah uh, that's really seen some strength from the 0.5%. And you would imagine that the high sulfur wouldn't keep track. But even that has now seen a real strength as well and kept kept pace. Um, we saw in the indexes when we, we started that um, levels are somewhat similar on those high five values. Uh, Singapore, 62, uh, was 59. Rotterdam was 56, 75, now 54. So around about the same level. So it has kept pace. Uh, but that Singapore 0.5% has really seen that demand from, from other areas and it, it just not being produced in the, in the same area. So that's where we're seeing, I think, a problem. Uh, I think that Libya will be desperate to utilise this time now to get some oil out of the door uh, and really start to try and rebuild after such disruption. Um, after, I mean, a war which started 
I mean, the, we were 2011. I think it's been it's been, been a quite long a while. Time. So they're they're going to be very keen to get that out. So I'm not surprised from from these figures. It's currently seventy thousand, but they've had real problems in actually getting it out of the country, let alone producing it. So a long target to to one million, but it's definitely going to start impacting on sentiment. Whether that actually comes out in actuality is a it is another point. But definitely a load of those points with the API with the second wave has really dented this. Uh, this move up that we're starting to see, we, we were getting into the 43 level and going, okay, we're, we're seeing some, some good support and everything. And it has just taken that edge off uh, yeah. completely down to those 40 levels, which is just about holding, but yeah, not great. But an interesting thing, which was actually noted from one client looking at levels was the Cal 21 value for Rotterdam 0.5%. So I'm sure you all remember when Brent absolutely collapsed. Uh, so if we look at mid-Feb, uh, Brent was around 27 bucks value. Uh, and Rotterdam, 0.5%, uh, Cal 21 value was still above the $300 mark. And yeah. if you look at it now, it's still only just above the $300 mark. So a real interesting point that it it seemed to be totally irrelevant where that, that Brent mark was. Uh, it is just through other spreads and everything else that's happened, really kept that strength on the Cal 21. So, you know, I don't think see it's any surprise that they are seeing such strength in the 0.5% fuel now going into next year i mean it's been predicted for a long time if you if you look at those kind of of values so yeah strong on the high sulfur strong on the 0.5 percent crude looking weak uh with sentiments on the api big builds on crude uh and libya production coming in and opec still having not done their historic cuts um but having a, an impact in terms of that on the the wet phase we're talking about libya but that has had a great effect positive wise on the TC6 route, which week on week has increased 12% uh, from world scale 70 to world scale 78.44, uh, with November climbing up four points from uh, world scale 90 to 94. Uh, this was on Friday. And again, on Monday, moved from 96 to 98. So that kind of Libyan production, although depressing crude price and sentiment, has definitely helped in terms of that specific wet rate. Yeah, exactly. Um, but uh, we also noted that uh, British Special Forces taking that tanker. Uh, it was uh, uh, an interesting moment uh, with people sending me the news story to updates and people going, oh, look, look, something's happened. So uh, we had that, but uh, potential hijacking or potential asylum seekers, I'm not quite sure in terms of what that was. When, when um, I woke up over here and read that headline, I thought, oh, this is going to be exciting. And then it all did die down a little bit and turn into oh, something. The special forces sort it out. Exactly. The SPF dropped on board, didn't they? But, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, wait, waiting, waiting for the, uh, the TV movie of that, you know, or the, uh, the film version. So what, like a really rubbish version of zero dark 30. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Get off yeah. our boat. <laughs> but uh in terms of of things there's not too much else to uh be talking about on oil and products we will see later today uh at half two uk time uh, what the eia do report on those crude stock figures um if we do come in with another uh build around where the api predicting 4.58 million you can continue you know, we'll see a continuing falling off of this sentiment because there really isn't too much good news uh, to be holding up prices, although it seems to be fairly strong above that 40 level. If it does break that, I imagine that we will 
we will drop down. Sentiment-wise, we've dropped below 40. It will start to gap down further, uh, especially with these increasing virus cases in the US. Uh, the UK seems to be taping off somewhat in terms of new cases reporting, uh, but new lockdowns in, in Italy, although there's big protests there about that. So all these figures um, and all the sentiment playing into a, an oil market, which is starting to look like a bit of a, a creaky ship uh, at the moment. I think that's what's bearing out in the equities market as well, Chris. It's all been fairly rosy, even with the uncertainty of the global uh, of the US election next week. It had been up, 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 and then big, big correction last couple of days. So I think it's uh, everyone's getting nervous now. Uh, so much uncertainty for the rest of the year. Exactly. Cool. Well, talking of nervousness and the end of the year and next week, Tuesday <laughs> is the big day. And I know it's something, but. Uh, a lot of Americans are concerned about, but it has a huge impact on the world economy, commodities and everything, because the largest uh, economy in the world is picking its new grand supreme leader. Um, let's ask the American, shall we? Kerry, what are we, what are we thinking here? What are people saying? I mean, let's look at some of the, the, the polling that we've been doing, Done. I know that you've been looking at some of that. I have. Yeah. I mean, look, if you look at the standard forecasts, let's call them, such as The Economist, for example, who build their own model, um, they're giving Biden a very, very high chance at the moment, around 96 percent in the case of The Economist uh, forecast uh, on who wins. Um, You know, I think there's this ongoing question, though, you know, everyone is a little bit hostage to their memories of 2016 and thinking, okay, are they counting all all the Trump voters? Is there such a thing as a silent Trump voter? Um, and, uh, you know, I personally consider Nate Silver's site, 538.com, a little bit more reliable, probably in terms of their modeling. Uh, the last election around this time, they were giving Trump around a 30% chance going into the election. And and they were very clear about that. They said, you know, this is not over for Trump and, uh, and, uh, you know, with a polling error of a couple of points, he could easily win this. Um, and, and, and in fact, of course he did. So. This year, to put it in perspective, they are giving him a 12% chance versus Biden at 88% in their forecast at the moment. Uh, this is a lot down to the fact there just seem to be less undecided voters this time. Um, you know, as much as people love to talk about the shock of 2016, the fact is this is a fundamentally different election. You know, Trump is running as an incumbent with an arguably questionable record, um, not as a radical outsider who's going to shake things up. Uh, and Biden seems to be generally well-liked, unlike four years ago when voters intensely disliked both candidates just about equally. Um, so, you know, I think time will tell. Um, there's obviously some systemic risks there, too. Whether or not we have any idea of who the victor is a week from today, <laughs> I think is an open question and one to watch. Um, but uh, but overall, most uh, most polling averages are, are tending to take uh, take the stand that Biden is very likely to win this at the moment. But to take devil's advocate, there was a group, uh, I believe it's the Trafalgar group, who predicted Trump's victory uh, last time, who have come out again and said that they think he will just win it again. Um, but a lot of it rests on the difficulty of predicting what the Electoral College produces yeah. rather than necessarily the overall, because Hillary Clinton did win the popular vote. Yeah, uh, and I'm pretty sure that you could say now that on the figures which we're seeing that Biden is probably likely to get a similar result 
maybe a bit higher because he's more generally well liked. Yeah, he, he may well break 50%, which is probably the key point here. But, you know, at the same time, uh, do remember this is not a national election. This is 50 mm. separate state elections or referenda, if you will, on, on who should be president, um, each one being, you know, a winner-take-all system. So uh, <laughs> it makes it a lot more difficult to predict. It's worth looking at the averages based on state polling, not on national polling, for sure. Um, yeah, the the early voting, I think, is, yeah, that's getting talked about as a lot a lot as well. Um, I think more people have now voted early than voted early for the last election. Oh, but still a week, yeah. week to go. So. So, yeah, a lot of those do seem to be Democrat registered. So that's sort of indicating. But, yeah, as Chris said, it is all about the Electoral College. Trump seemingly from from reading about it over the last few weeks can't win without winning Philadelphia. And he is doubling down on it this week. Hard, right. He's got three rallies there over the next next couple of days. Um, uh, so, they, I mean, they've clearly decided that that's their battleground. Um, but Biden's got a lot more money behind him, seemingly, at the moment, uh, and can just run back-to-back ads in those key yeah, states. And, and so. interestingly enough, he's campaigning in places where a Democrat candidate probably wouldn't have dreamed of doing so at any time in the last couple of decades, really. Um, you know, in places like Georgia, where he had a rally yesterday, um, which now looks to be neck and neck, uh, according to the polls, which is truly remarkable. So, uh, so we do have some probably some surprises in store in this election, but let's see. Yeah, well, pending a clear result, we should know next podcast. But uh, who knows what? Yeah, I can hope we have an idea uh, by yeah. the next podcast. Let's yeah. back. Watch Florida, watch Pennsylvania, and you'll probably know where we're going to be. Um, but hopefully we'll be able to give some sort of idea where we're going to go next week in terms of the US election and what impact that will have on commodity markets going forward. Um, the global sense of where the world's going to be moving. Um, but yes, so fingers crossed, Kerry. Fingers crossed. Uh, and uh, if you're in the States, don't forget to vote. <laughs> yeah, don't forget to vote. You must always vote. Uh, but anyway, thank you, Tom and Kerry, for our update this week and everyone listening. Uh, don't stay up too late on Tuesday, but uh, we will see you again next Wednesday for our podcast. Cheers, guys. Thanks, guys.